This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 39 for August 2013, and your hosts are Ken Morfield, that's me, and returning after a one-show hiatus, Todd Truffitt. That's me. Welcome back, Todd. Thank you. Glad to be back. Our topic for this episode is Umberto D, the 1952 film by Vittorio De Sica. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you've not yet seen Umberto D and do not want spoilers, this might be a good time to check out one of the other great podcasts on Film Geek Radio. Todd, since I think that Umberto D is not quite as well known as Vittorio De Sica's other acknowledged masterpiece, The Bicycle Thieves, could you give us our, our 30-second plot summary? Our main character is Umberto D, who is a retired civil service worker. As the film opens, we see a big protest of pensioners who are unhappy that their pensions have been either cut or not raised, which then we go from the big scene down to our, our main character, who we learn is an old man with a dog who is having trouble paying his rent. The main story then follows his attempts at trying to either sell his belongings to make rent but throughout the whole film, um, he's interacting also with a kitchen maid named Maria. And kind of the crisis of the film is he finally decides that his life is not worth living. But yet he can't bring himself to simply kill himself because someone has to take care of Blake, his dog. Through a series of events, he tries various met, uh, ways of getting the dog taken care of. None of them are satisfactory to him. And in the closing moments, he then decides, well, if no one can take care of the dog, he will jump in front of a train with the dog. But the dog convinces him otherwise. And they end the film dancing happily in a park. I should say that uh, part of the reason I picked Umberto B is trying to put together an essay on Desica for Faith and Spirituality and Masters of World Cinema, Volume 3. Boy, that's a mouthful. And I had seen The Bicycle Thieves, uh, Sunflowers, and certainly this one seemed to be next on the list. I was a little surprised when we were done that I was not emotionally engaged by the film in the way that I expect it to be, certainly not in the way that I was by Bicycle Thieves, uh, not in the way that I uh, was by any of the films of Rossellini, who's the other Italian neorealist that I am most familiar with. And so that concerned me a little bit. And then in our pre-show notes, 
you went first and said you had some of the same reactions. I think that's worth exploring because this was a film that I hate this expression. I wanted to love. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and certainly a film that I very much appreciated, but which I never seem to get close to. And so I, I think I want to take a few minutes and, and, and talk about that and see what perhaps some of the possibilities are for uh, why the film was less successful for the two of us, not in an objective sense. Yeah, and, and I should say here that um, this is the first The Secret film I've ever seen. Um, one of the conversations that we had pre-show was, Ken, you were talking about maybe you were had seen so many of either Italian neorealist films or having seen just a couple of other De Sica films perhaps being burned out. Um, and I certainly didn't have that coming into it. And I agree. I mean, I, I think this, this is one of those films that is dealing with some very important big issues. Uh, how do we treat the elderly in our society? Uh, what do we do? You know, how are the various systems in our cultures? How do we, how do they dehumanize the elderly and, you know, just shove them to the side? I think these are very important questions. The nature nurture debate, whether environment, you know, whether environment is determinative. Right. And, and so these are big things, um, that the film is grappling with. And yet, I agree. I, I found it very hard to, you know, really care too much. And, you know, and even without all those big issues, it's a man and his dog. How, how can this not be a, an emotionally engaging right. story? Well, okay, so you mentioned burnout. I wrote down in my notes, compare to, and I started jotting down the films that mm-hmm. I was thinking about in my head, and I said Akiru, which is Kurosawa's right. old man facing death. Right. Wendy and Lucy, which is Kelly Reichardt's film about a girl and her dog, and Crime and Punishment, which is a story about a person facing poverty and selling everything that he has. Uh, what I call the, the, the slow and relentless slide from poverty into destitution, which made me think of Hard Times, a novel, not necessarily a film, by Charles Dickens. King Lear, about old age, and being gradually divested of all of the things one has accumulated. The House of Mirth, about that slow slide into in poverty. Uh, you had seen not that long ago and read a review for one more show blog, The Ballad of Nariyama. Yep. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. I certainly think the, the Jack London story, The Way of the World, which I teach often when I do two of at which one I stopped writing and said, yeah. okay, so this is well-trod ground story-wise and thematically. You had also sort of hinted at or opined at, uh, hinted at my conjecture that as well as there being a similarity thematically, there's a, a structural or stylistic similarity to a lot of the Italian neorealism I saw Bicycle Thieves not that long ago. And there is that sort of plotlessness that comes from the introduction of a problem 
the attempt to solve the problem that we as the audience are pretty sure is unsolvable because the problem reaches beyond the capacity of the individual person to solve, and yet we have to painfully show each step through which they try to solve it and how that doesn't work. And so there was part of me that said, okay, maybe just stylistically or something, there, there's some there's some compassion fatigue. And I'm willing to, I, I'm willing to allow that as possibility. Uh, you had suggested something a little bit more blunt in, in our pre-show notes. Well, and part of it is is that Umberto D is just simply not a likable fellow. He, it is very easy to sympathize with his plight. But the film, at almost every turn, when just when you're beginning to feel sorry for this guy, Umberto behaves in various ways that show he's either very, very self-centered or, or selfish, does not care two bits about the people around him, um, the, but, but the only human connection that he seems to have is with his dog. Uh, and as examples, there's a scene early in the film where he's in a cafeteria, and he's not supposed to have the dog in the cafeteria. Um, but rather than obey the rules, um, he inconveniences or actually even takes food away from people around him um, to distract the waitress from noticing that he had his dog there. Which doesn't work anyway. Which doesn't work anyway. Um, you know, we get a scene later in the film where the dog is missing. He sees Maria, the kitchen maid, um, who is um, pregnant, and she's talking to a soldier who may be the father, and she's crying, obviously upset. He rushes up to her, and rather than seeing that this girl is upset, you know, not even a cursory, oh, you seem upset. It's, he yells at her for losing the dog. Um, you know, it, it's, it's very much that sort of thing. Even, uh, later he finds, he needs change for a taxi because he's going to the dog pound. Um, you know, he buys a glass so that he can have change. And then, no one will give him change. No one will give him change. And he throws the glass into the street. Um, you know, it shatters all over the place. And so now you have broken glass all over the street. No regard for anyone else's safety. Um, so again, we see these things all along where he really um, is not a pleasant person. Um, and you begin to you begin to think, yeah, the reason that he's alone and doesn't have any support network may not be just the system. Well, you're you're a half step probably beyond me on that one. I'm, I'm tracking with you pretty well. And I'm thinking two separate thoughts about that one is you said it's easy to sympathize with them and i wrote down sympathize versus empathize or pity mm -hmm. you know, pity and charity right. versus genuine sympathy and i think there's many sermons to be heard from a christian perspective about some of those differences between right. genuine sympathy and more pity yeah and, and i do think that in many ways that it's easy to pity him in this generic way of he's in a situation that I don't want to be in. Exactly. 
but for me, that sympathy or empathy is always more personal. It involves connecting with the other person and sharing their suffering, mm-hmm. taking on part of their load and allowing them to do the same as opposed to pity is always distinct from a distance. Right. And it's also looking down. Right, right. And and there there's something so there's something there's something generic about his situation that it's easy to say, Oh, I don't want to be in that situation and therefore I feel bad for him. But I, I think it's actually somewhat difficult for me to sympathize with mm-hmm. him. Now a Christian might turn that around and say, that's the whole point of the story, or that's one point of the story, is the difficulty that we have of actually feeling these things that we're supposed to feel. And so the ease with which we substitute some pale imitation of the real thing. We're supposed to love our neighbors, and and yet that's hard to do. Right. And, and that it goes to the other place where I'm tracking with you, which is from a, a spiritual standpoint, just the differences between humanism or loving your neighbor in the abstract versus in the real specific instance. Right. And it seems like oftentimes the people who are most in need of sympathy are those who make it the hardest for you to sympathize with them by by pushing you away, by rejecting your attempts to help, by not making your job easier. Yeah. And it's not his job to make us like him, but in some ways we feel like it is, you know, because we feel like it's not my job to like him. And so if he, you know, it would be so much easier for him if he would just, Right. Well, it may make it his job to make us like it. There's there's a scene in the hospital, right, where the guy's trying to give him instructions on how to work the system. Right. And he says to ask the nun for a rosary. And and Umberto D doesn't really want to play the system. He doesn't want to be inauthentic. Uh he finally does and and it works. And one gets the feeling like this is a jibe on religion in much the same way. There's there's a scene, I know you haven't seen Bicycle Thieves, but there's a scene in which the guy, the worker is looking for his bicycle and he stops in a mission. And the way in which the people who are feeding people at the mission are oblivious to the drama that's going on mm. in, in front of that, yeah, we're willing to tend to your body and eat and give you a meal and give you a hospital bed, but we're really not willing to engage you as a neighbor or as a human being or to care about your life in any sort of specific way. Like that's a knock about the church, but there's a part of me that wanted to stand up for the nun and say, that's not the church. That's, that's humanity. And the church recognizes the fallen nature of humanity and at least tries to work within its own brokenness to love those who are unlovable. Um, at this point, I mean, I, I'm also brought to mind of a scene kind of later in the film where he meets a former boss, I guess, commissioner, who offers to 
let me buy you a cup of coffee. Let me take you out for a drink or something. And Umberto just keeps refusing. Right. And keeps refusing. And you know, this this guy, he wants a job. You know, you know, to supplement his pension. Something. And, and and the guy knows that he needs help and is trying to help, but Umberto refuses it. Um, and, and I think, in a sense, I, I felt myself kind of being in the commissioner's shoes. It's like every time you would offer to take a step towards him, he would either push you away or back off. I, I think that's a little bit of, okay, part of what the charity and the begging is. And we see Umberto, see various people begging. He tries it at one point uh, and can't bring himself he has too much pride to, to, to do that. Uh, but the nature, I mean, when you think about it, the nature of this sort of panhandling begging is I'm going to be enough of a pest or a nuisance to you that you will give me something to make me go away. Make me go away. And by giving something rather than nothing, you buy your way out of a deeper engagement. And yeah. so on some level, um, maybe Umberto D realizes that it's like, okay, this isn't going to help me at all. Which is why it's interesting when the commissioner actually does offer to engage with him. But, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that cup of coffee is any really that much different than the few coins that someone puts in the hat or, or something Maybe. like that. that. That the commissioner is, is in a sense, saying to Umberto D., I'm not going to, here's the upper limits of what I can help you, you mm-hmm. know, with. And that's nowhere near addressing it or not, not what he wants or not yeah, what he's ready for. I think we obviously are reading that yeah. a little differently. So the ending, which you refer to and the use of music suggests to me on some levels that the Sika wants us to be emotionally engaged with America D expects that we are and expects that we are feeling something at the end of the film that I certainly wasn't. No. Um, and, you know, to compare, I mean, you had mentioned Rossellini, and we had re- recently did Stromboli. Right. And that's another film where the main character is someone who's not very likable. You're talking about Connor. Connor. Played by Ingrid Berman. Ingrid Berman. And yet, that was a film that by the end of the film, I was very emotionally engaged with her story. Uh, even though, you know, there were plenty of times in the film where I was, I thought she was not behaving well. There was something about the way that film was structured and her, well, I don't know if it's performance or, you know, the story itself, where this unlikable person was someone I could sympathize with. Well, let's roll with that for a while. I mean, we've got some other things in our show notes or something like yeah. that, but I think that might actually be more interesting. Uh, I'm going to throw out some suggestions or possibilities about why um, Karin might be more likable. Um, and I'm just throwing off the top of my head. Okay, uh, Ingrid Bergman, rather than a professional actress, rather than an Umberto D, we've got a non-professional okay. uh, actor. A female character as opposed to a character. Uh, certainly... In, the ending of Ingrid Bergman is vocalized in the acknowledgement. We spent a lot of time in our podcast talking about he's horrible or they're horrible, but I'm horrible too. A, right. a sort of recognition of her own brokenness and destitution that, that made her a little bit more 
sympathetic. Uh, and then the one that really sort of resonates with me uh, on an unconscious level would be the forces that have conspired against Ingrid Bergman seem to be the war, seem to be these big disruptive mm-hmm. things. Whereas Umberto D is, well, I've been living in the civil service. I'm on a pension, you know, right. so it, it's not like anything grand has come up that has swept you to another part of the world right. and totally disrupted your life. That's just the natural course of living your life has somehow or another led you at to this place. Well, and we get this very, in the, the, our introduction to him, to Umberto, he's with some other friends who are at the protest, and we find out he's the only one who is in debt. He is the only one who's seen, I mean, no one's happy with their pension. They all would like to have a little bit more, but he's the only one who seems to be in trouble. And so that, that speaks to perhaps, again, more, you know, he's not taking some responsibility at some point. Okay. Uh, well, I, which, you know, to your point of, yeah, in, in Stromboli, I, at least for me, there was something about the fact that our character came to a point of realization. Right. And said, oh, yeah, I'm also a horrible person. And not that that makes her situation easier, but it makes, it's always easier to sympathize with someone who recognizes their own faults. I agree with you. I want to circle back to something you said just a little bit earlier about him being the only one that's in debt, because it's an important point where I agree with you, but I also think it's an interesting comparison to Stromboli in the sense of the the structure of the story. I'm back to the genericness of the sympathy. He's in, he's in a place where he doesn't have enough money to live on and he doesn't need, he doesn't appear to have anyone he can go to. The people that he meets by chance are unwilling to help him to the degree that he thinks that he needs. But there is something to me about how did he get there? The reason I think that that's an interesting comparison to Stromboli is because Ingrid Bergman's past in Stromboli is also shrouded in mystery. There's right. a little bit of we we don't exactly. I mean, maybe perhaps we know in a general sense how she got in the refugee camp, as we know in a general sense how he became a pensioner. Right. But the particulars matter. They do. Uh, always or sometime or just in this case? I mean, I'm not being difficult. Right. Oh, no, I, I think at, at least in comparing why we're having different responses to these two characters, I think the particulars do matter um, in terms of these two stories. In, in a sense of, I think with Umberto, at least I think the way the film is asking us to look at him, or at least the, the details the film gives us seems to suggest that he has some culpability in how he got to his situation. Whereas I think Stromboli, even though there are these mysteries in the back, they don't seem to have led directly to the plight of our, of, of our the main character. Yeah, I find myself reluctant 
to embrace the word culpability. And I don't know if that's just, you know, my liberalness. Don't blame the victim being beaten, you know, being beat into me. I'm reminded of, I think it was Steven Bochco talking about the TV show NYPD Blue and okay. a very unlikable main character mm-hmm. named Andy Sipowitz, oh, yes. uh, who became beloved. Yes. A- and the sort of notion that in a narrative, once you, once you make, get people to like a character, they will, you can go through a lot. They can do mm-hmm. a lot of different things. And yet, there was this sense in which that character had to go through some horrific things to let the audience almost have permission to, uh, like him or look past some of his, some of his flaws. I think then part of what the needing of a past does is to humanize the behavior in such a way so that when they are unlikable, you at least have some memory of something good that they mm-hmm. did or some reminder that they were human and not just this unlikable thing. Um, or if you don't have that, in the case of Stromboli, you have, at least within the film, some gestures at or some attempts at reform of human behavior, of understanding that make you realize in her own weak, fitful way, however much she's possible, that Karin is is trying to mm-hmm. understand and she goes to talk to the priest, she clean the you know, clean the home or she'll go out to row or you know, a lot of things that she does makes it worse. Right. But but we see them within her own world as as attempts and we right. know of what they cost her. I think of one of the comparisons that I wrote down of King Lear. Well there you know, King Lear is almost nowhere likable in the play, mm-hmm. but certainly in the responses of other people, Cordelia and Kent to him, we get some hints at the past that, right. okay, you know, in order to engender this kind of devotion in a daughter, he couldn't have always have been like this way. Right. And so when we see shadows or flits of the behavior, it's not entirely bad, you, right. you know. Uh, we think, okay, there's, there's a human being in there somewhere. I think about two films that are very much in that theme, uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, where the final speech is very much about that. Uh, yeah, there's something inside me that's not quite dead yet, or another TV show, uh, The Sopranos, where, uh, Tony's not a likable person. No. Um, he's in, in many ways less human than in Bertha D, but we do see him struggle in his own way in Dr. Melfi's office or our number one famous episode in which he, uh, found out that the high school gym coach was molesting some girls and, you know, his anger or fear when he thinks one of them might be his daughter. He finds out that it's not, but he still has all this anger and he wants to use it to kill the, that person. And, and there's a very poignant scene where he, you know, he gets drunk and he's in his house and he said, I didn't hurt anyone today. And just in, you know, in that drunkenness, that little bit of humanity right. comes out that sort of says, okay, I, it, it, it's easier to deal with all of these things on a day to day level because I believe that there's a human being in there somewhere. Um, no, Bertha D is never the monster that Tony Soprano is, but I, I, I don't often see the struggle. 
Yeah. I, I mean, the struggle is just against economic and political forces. It's not a struggle against his own selfishness, his own desires, his own. And that's part of what humanism is, too. I, I, or maybe that's just part of what being, you, you know, Christian is, is recognizing your struggle's not against flesh and blood, it's against you know, yeah. something and inside of you. And I'm, what I'm wondering is you bring up this, and I'm wondering there is a scene where he talks about, because one of the questions I had, and we do get something of an answer, is he, he's very committed to staying in this, this boarding house. Um, the landlady wants to push him out um, and get the impression she just wants to have a bigger house and is tired of having a renter. Well, and she and, can make more money if she rents it out by, I mean, yeah, certainly well, we get in that first yeah, scene. And she's it, renting it out by the hour. economic thing. If I rent it out by the hour uh, to these lovers having cursed, I can make more money than if I rent it out by the hour. Right. And, and then by the end of the film, she's getting married and wants to have a nice right. place to entertain. Um, and he keeps saying, I'm going to live there. There's laws. I'm going to stay here. I, I've lived here for 20 years. And, and at one point, he, he mentions the fact that during the war, World War II, you know, he had shared his meat with the landlady. He had, you know, we see that he had done, at some point, I guess, had been more human. <laughs> he, he had, you know, shared things with others. Um, and, and now he's very surprised that, you know, the landlady is not remembering these kindnesses and just wants to kick him out of his ear. Um, and again, you know, we, we can, you know, we can feel bad for him, but I don't know, there's a little bit of me that's remembering, you know, death of a salesman, where at the end of working for 30 years, you know, Willie Loman is just like, is, aghast that the company is treating him like an employee um, and not a family member. Um, and I think you're seeing a little bit of a similar... You it reminds me of that famous line in Mad Men, the, the show that I don't like too much, where uh, the the female character is complaining that Don Draper doesn't didn't thank her enough or express appreciation, and he said, that's what the money's for! Yes, I mean, there's that the moment in Death of the Salesman where Lily Lomas like, you, you can't squeeze the orange and throw away the fruit. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what you do with an orange, is you squeeze out the juice and you throw it away. I mean, that's... Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing a little bit, bit of that, you know, the, the human side of, of that. But at the same time, it doesn't make you like the main character anymore. Yeah, there's that part of me that if you're real, if I'm really honest, says, you know, step in front of the train and be done with it. Mm -hmm. The dog wants to live, right? You know? Yeah. So, I, that's, if the dog wants to live and is going to do what it, you know, what it takes to live, then I will feel sympathy or empathy for the dog, you know? The dog has done nothing to bring this time to well, and, or maybe he has, I don't know. I mean, maybe the dog, maybe the dog had surgery, right? And wiped <laughs> out half of his pension or savings. And that's why, he, you know, that's but why he's poor. And then you're right there. I've already told a better story or, or whatnot <laughs> that, that's, that's more engaging because so maybe it is the dog's fault. All I know is that the dog wants to live. Yes. And, and 
therefore is willing to do something, you know, when the train comes to to bite and struggle and squirm and say, you know, I want to get out of it. And while there can be some <clears throat> generic sympathy at that point where you see the, okay, I don't have any fight left. And all that's left for me to do is, is. Yes. Well, Lumberger even says at one point, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm, I'm just tired. You know, we had, we had mentioned, and this might be a good segue towards the combination of what we had mentioned a line or an exchange that we both like very much where he's going out ostensibly to commit suicide. He says goodbye to Maria, the maid. Yes. And I certainly read that encounter as she knew where he was going and what he was planning to do or strongly suspected. And she says, wherever you go, you'll be happier. Wherever you go, you'll be happier than you are here. Yeah. And there's a part of me that's like, okay, there's something that's honest about that. And there's something that's dignified about that in a right to die sort of way. I guess my podcast would be very non-Christian. That rather than me sort of saying, okay, this is, what am I supposed to say? This is my duty to supposed to say, oh my gosh, I have to talk him out of it. To say, maybe it's possible that you have nothing to live for. Maybe it's possible that you are unhappy and are going to be unhappy until the day that you die, that this is going to be a struggle. Maybe you just don't have any fight left. And while I would like you to fight for me because it would make me feel better that I wouldn't have to deal with the guilt of not being able to save you or not being able to help you, uh, the reality is, is you know, I, I, I get it. I understand. And, and I will probably be in that place. <laughs> Uh, eventually, yeah, and I hope that, a good place. And, and I hope that when I am, that someone is willing to let me go rather than just say, "No, it's your job to to keep grinding out a miserable existence so that we don't have to think uh, unhappy thoughts." And so there was a place of thought. Okay, I get that. There, there, there's something that's noble in that last encounter. She giving him permission to go. And then we get this scene where he can't quite do it, and now he's playing, you know, he's playing with the dog in the park at the end, and the triumphal music is playing, and I think Masika is telling me I'm supposed to be happy that he didn't kill himself. But why I'm supposed to be happy that he didn't kill himself, I don't think the film explains to me. And in fact, I think the film maybe even makes a, a larger argument to say, not that I should be happy that he kills himself, but that I should, I should understand and I should be yeah, maybe okay with that. And and any part of it goes back to Maria's words because I'm I'm not convinced. I mean, I'm convinced that she knew that he was perhaps going someplace else, going to kill himself. I mean, he left her a bunch of things. I mean, I. I you know, there are certain signs there, and she's not a stupid girl. At the same time, you know, I, I really, you know, I think another part of the context is every single thing that he's doing to stay in that house is making him miserable. And I, I really just saw her as, all, another way to read it, I think, is just, you know, if you go somewhere else, anywhere else than in this house with that landlady. Doctor, it really hurts when I, you know... <laughs> When I do this, <laughs> stop doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, he mentions at some point that he will never go to the 
apparently there there is a home. There is a state sponsored, you know, home for the the destitute or whatever mm-hmm. that he could go to. And he's like, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Um, probably because I won't let him have a dog. Uh, but you know, she she gives him this. She does give him permission to leave. And I think I, I, I agree with you there. And there is very much that sense of anywhere you go uh, other than here, you're going to be happy. Right. And, you know, now. Well, so that's very anti-euthanasia thing in the sense of make the argument against euthanasia, which yeah. is, you know, sometimes people want to kill themselves and they're just depressed. And if you put them in a different situation, get out of here. Things that, you know, what you need is not to die. What you yeah. need is to get out of this sort of log jam that you've made in your head between you and this landlady that's never going to end the way that no. you want. And, and he's never going to have what he wants. You're never going to find what you want unless you ask for it and look for it. And, and um, now, there's at least a chance if you're alive. There's not. Right. I mean, I agree with you, though, that the ending is very confused um, in the sense of we go from this, this crisis of wanting to throw himself in front of the train, and then the next minute he's dancing in the park. Speaking of selfishness, too, um, can I just say for a second that of all the ways to kill yourself, throwing yourself in front of a train seems to me to be one of the most selfish, because not only does someone have to clean up after you, which is pretty much true of any suicide, right? but then you're burdening another person, you know, the train conductor or the other person. There was a, there was a This American Life episode not too long ago about talking to a train conductor in New York City um, and dealing with, who, who had had two people jump in front of his train in like a year. Right. Um, and really, you know, he talks about, you know, he had a way of dealing with it, but other train drivers, it ruins their whole career. I mean, they stop. And, and there's a scene in which Umberto is looking out the window, right? Yes. And he's, the, you know, you do the close-up of the the bricks on the ground, and it's very evident that he's thinking about right. throwing himself out the window from a high place, but somehow can't do it because, you know, he's afraid or yeah. something like that. And so there, even in the contemplation of suicide and death, there is this sort of selfishness of, of okay, well, I can't do it. I can't do it in such a way that only frightens me or whatever. So I have to be passive aggressive about it and, you know, let the. Well, and I gotta take my dog with me too. That's the other part about that. It's it's bad enough you're trying to kill yourself, but then kill the dog too. Yeah, well, the dog is, it's interesting in the scene because he hides from the dog. Yeah. And there, there's actually, there's a wonderful sermon in there somewhere in that because he doesn't think the dog will leave him. And so he, it, it, the way I read it is he wants to kill himself and he knows the dog will follow him and he wants to spare the dog. Um, but so he goes and hides in the bushes, uh, hoping the dog will rock by or not see him, you know, throws the balls in the yeah. dog, chase him, and, and then he runs away. And the dog, you know, just kind of finds him in the bushes, you know, finds him. Cuts through all the bullcrap. There's a parable in that somewhere, right? You know? And again, if if at that point he had picked up the dog and went and got into the park, 
okay, I would get that ending because right. the dog sort of reminded me of, you know, the dog is like God or Jesus or whatever that won't let you leave him. Yes. You know, the, the hound, of, hound of heaven or something like that. But I, I almost feel like if he had picked up the dog and went to the park at that point, that the seeker felt like, okay, that wouldn't be enough or we wouldn't get it. So we have to actually have to have this very heavy-handed scene of the train coming and the the barriers coming down and him getting underneath the barrier and, and the dog struggling. You know, the dog struggling. And then go back and do it. And, and that little extra bit actually... Um, in a sense, kind of ruins for me or undercuts the very effective scene that that had had come well, before. It, it, it's so ham-fisted. Yeah, um, it's like I I've made my point. Now let me pound on the pulpit some more and make sure you get it. It, it just felt very uncertain or tentative, and it I don't know. That may be because the Sika is more interested in Roberto D as a symbol of this pensioner than as an actual person. And so he doesn't know how to end it because it's right. not really a story. It's not really his it's a story. It's right. a sketch or a portrait or, or whatnot. But then, you know, if you don't know how to end it, then, you know, just have it end with him leaving the house. And we don't know where he went. Uh, I mean, uh, certainly the ending of Bicycle Thieves we don't know what's going to happen next, but it comes at an ending where that part of the story is is over. We don't know how whatever is going to be solved, but it but there's a particular place where it ends that makes it thematically whole. Mm-hmm. And this this place here, it just it, it almost felt a little bit to me like a student coming to the end of the paper. I've reached my word limit. <laughs> Um, in conclusion, what, what, in, in conclusion, you know, we should all love our dogs and be happy. Yeah. Todd, any other comments about the? No, no. I mean, there are certainly. I mean, we, we've been pretty negative. I think about the film, and you know, it's it's a well done film. Um, there are some definitely some very beautiful shots. The cinematography is very nice. I can see why people are still watching it. Um, and, you know, I notice on, like, Metacritic or something, it's got, like, a 92%, you know, thing. Um, I do think it's flawed. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I sometimes I hate that about film criticism or about my own There was the one podcast. guy from the Village Voice that gave it a 50. So. Right, <laughs> where I'm just kind of like, if we're comparing it, I'll go back to my comparisons. You know, if I'm comparing it to Akira, Wendy and Lucy, King Lear, The House of Mirth, Crime and Punishment, well, those are some of the best novels and Bicycle Thieves. Those are some of the best novels, some of the best films ever made. Right. So just about any film is going to, is going to pale my comparison. And, and I do appreciate your kind of helping us take a step back and saying, okay, you know, just because it's maybe not as as complete for me as Bicycle Thieves doesn't mean that it's grown-ups, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there is, um, 
it, because it's a serious film and it's it's a work of art. It may be you know it's flawed in its execution, I think. Yeah, uh, but, but, but it's, it's trying it's, to do some serious work. It's trying to do some serious work, and, and it is doing some serious work, and it's doing some serious work successfully. It's doing some serious work unsuccessfully, and I would kind of rather have that than a film that's just market driven to death and right. you know is is Transformers four or whatever and we know this is gonna make forty million dollars and hundred million dollars and and I won't remember it in in two years from you know right. so uh yeah so I'm not, I I think we're tracking on the same page. It's 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 an admirable film and it's worth seeing for uh, certainly, you know, the budding cinephile, uh, anyone interested in the Sika, anyone interested in, in neorealism. Uh, and, and if for a film, you know, we've got all sorts of things going on in our country today about healthcare and about, you know, with Wall Street and dealing with pensions and dealing with what we do with retirement, you know, this is a film that kind of gets into some of those questions. Right. And it's worth thinking about. So, yeah, definitely. Although, if you've never seen a Vittorio De Sica film, then maybe go watch Bicycle Thieves. And, and, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I would say. You, you know, if, if your choice is between Inverto D and Bicycle Thieves, don't watch Inverto D. But if your choice is between Inverto D and whatever's played at the Multiplex, um, watch Inverto this D. Week, then, then uh, it's at least worth considering. Yes. All right. Thank you, Todd. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you've got questions or comments about this episode or suggestions for films you'd like to hear Todd and I uh, rip to shreds before <laughs> we say that we actually liked it, uh, drop us a line at the thin place at filmgeekradio.com or visit us at www.filmgeekradio.com backslash the thin place. You can read my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com or follow me on Twitter at twitter.com backslash 10 This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio. Yeah.